Welcome to The Spawn Chunks, episode number 262 for Monday, September 11th, 2023. My name is Joel Duggan and joining me with a fresh from France smell is my friend Johnny, otherwise known as Pixlriffs on the internet. Hello. Hello, bonjour, in fact. And uh, I've been, yeah, explaining a little bit more about what I was doing in France in this week's Render Distance. That's the extended version of the podcast you can get if you support the show from patreon.com slash thespawnchunks. And you might even get to see some of my holiday snaps in there if you haven't been following me on Instagram and other places uh, for the last little while. Um, I want to say a big thank you, first of all, to Tadpole Milk for stepping in and covering my spot while I was away. Really enjoyed that episode. Some lovely conversations about what it's like playing Minecraft with families some really really cool stories so definitely check that episode out if you haven't already and it's uh, a delight to be back um we do have a couple of patron events coming up we're gonna have our chunk mail dispenser which was unlocked by our patreon campaign next monday september 18th so if you've got some emails you want to send into the show you can send them in to spawnchunkmail at gmail.com our monthly minecraft hangout should be going ahead on the last saturday of the month we still need to make sure that is in the diary but i don't have any more like trips or unscheduled pc maintenance fingers crossed coming up so hopefully should be able to get that in as well as our quarterly hangout which will be coming up in october where we talk about the behind the scenes facts and figures of the podcast so uh, a lot going on on the calendar and speaking of what's been going on uh what have uh, you been able to accomplish in the uh, the survival guide since you've been back yeah, I, I basically had to get stuck in straight away um, because we were back on Monday and then, you know, I wanted to have an episode out by Wednesday. So I was covering a couple of shorter topics. Um, I came back by linking up a few nether portals uh, to spawn where I now have my iron farm that I built before I went and my skeleton spawner XP farm just as a, a fun exercise in explaining how portal linking works. And I actually managed to build a portal uh, completely by accident, but close enough to both of those portals that if I stood in one side of it I'd come out in the skeleton spawner and if I stood on the other side I'd come out at spawn so it was a really neat way of showing that you can actually link a portal to multiple places and it's so dependent on the coordinates you're standing when you go through the portal where you come out so yeah there was uh, a bunch of fun stuff I could demonstrate there uh, the most recent thing I've done is a little bit of build theory following on from a, an episode in which I built the blacksmith's house and talked a little bit about my philosophy when it comes to designing stuff. I did some interior work on my starter house, which has been very functional up until this point. Um, but I kind of covered lots of stuff that we talked about on the podcast before, actually, like how, you know, sub-block details and more detailed blocks like bookshelves are kind of the key to decorating a smaller space. And the fact that, you know, every block in Minecraft is a meter wide means you've really got to work with a lot of those little things. So the kind of stuff that I'm sure you've been, you know, <laughs> working uh, pretty pretty intensively on West Hill trying to get the, uh, the interiors of stuff done in recent weeks. And it was uh, nice to have a, uh, <laughs> a bit of a refresher on that kind of stuff. Moving on to the rest of the week, though, I think I'm probably going to start designing an outer shell for my storage room in Creative and eventually probably move that into Survival. In the meantime, I want to visit a Pillager Outpost. I'm kind of ticking off some stuff to do um, before we do the Ender Dragon fight, which is probably going to be around episode 50 or something along those lines. Um, and I'm kind of... I'm not, like, feeling like I don't want to do it necessarily but I'm hesitant about changing my perspective on the world before we've covered certain topics so I'm debating whether I want to go and do a woodland mansion before I've got a lytra because 
of course, you can just fly there and they're often, you know, tens of thousands of blocks away. But there are going to be some people who would want to go and check out a woodland mansion before they do a pillager raid or before they go to the end. And so there's there's some concepts that I can cover there that I'm not certain I necessarily need elytra for whether or not i want it is kind of up for debate um might also try and track down a trail ruins since it makes sense to talk about a lot of the archaeological stuff before we really start going into the the high technology side of minecraft and talk about you know traveling with shelker boxes and and, and where to go from there so yeah I, I'll, I'll kind of play it by ear a little bit but i've got a couple of things on the docket for sure nice i I've been focusing actually outside of West Hill in the last week. Uh, I decided to take a little bit of break from within the four walls and get into some landscaping. There are a number of uh, secondary roads in the West Hill Valley that I wanted to kind of complete where I had hinted where they were going to go, but I really needed to lay them out. So I started the road last week, but then this week was all about detailing the banks of the West Hill River between the East Farm Road and the West Hill River. And eons ago, nearly three years ago, uh, I built a wheat farm that kind of expanded over the river and went up a little bank. And I've always thought it would look really cool coming in along the main road, which you can see in some of my screenshots in the distance. So as you're walking down the main road, you're basically looking right at this extended bank of the West Hill River as it curves around and heads south. And so I'm going to be putting a tiered wheat farm all along this entire place. So the whole bank is going to be this nice, bright, you know, beige wheat color, which is going to be really fun, especially with shaders. It looks really golden and, and, and nice. So I spent this week laying out the tiers for that wheat farm, trying to make it look structured, but also organic, kind of like the, the farmer might have been following the, the lay of the land rather than just kind of like cutting and making whatever shape they wanted. And so in some places, the wall for the tiers is two blocks tall. In other places, it's only one because I've put in like a little a little kind of sub tier. I was looking at a lot of things like rice paddy fields in, in Asia and that kind of stuff for inspiration. And I've also seen other Minecrafters like Fwip and Mythical Sausage do stuff like this in the past. And uh, it surprisingly took longer than I thought, but I'm quite happy with the way that it's turned out so far. I've got a pond that was a natural Minecraft pond at the very top of everything. And right now I'm kind of using the pond as part of the barrier. I may end up reshaping it and moving it fully within the wall around the farm. I haven't really decided yet, but it's, it's definitely going to get a reshape because it's, it's very Minecraft kind of chunky. Uh, and I'm going to what I'm going to do is I'm going to have a small stream come out of that pond and trickle down from tier to tier to tier. I think right now in the rough stages, I've got those little um, dike openings flagged with scaffolding so you can sort of see where it's going to kind of trickle down over the the tiers and then eventually empty into the river and i just thought it'd be kind of fun to have a nice shock of blue every once in a while as you're looking at this you know sea of yellowy beige wheat uh, in in the distance so uh, i haven't planted much i've done a little bit of a test at the very top just to kind of decide how i want to lay out the rows of wheat and the main idea behind this is as you're walking down the main road which is on the other side of the river i didn't want the rows of wheat to line up with your view so that if you're looking at the wheat field i didn't want you looking straight down between the rows of wheat so that you could see a big gap i wanted the rows to run the other way so that when you're coming into town you see what feels like a solid you know field of wheat 
whereas they look more realistic and it's a lot more fun to create like rows and paths and it gives you opportunities to sprinkle things like barrels or a cart or something like that inside the farm and so i've got ideas for a road i've got a little bridge that's going to go over the um the brook and and i'm working through how much of this i want to be wheat and how much of it i want to be path but uh, so far it's just been a lot of fun and these are the kind of things that you can't really plan out intensively like you know doing this in creative would be pointless like you just have to kind of get into survival and just kind of putter around run a couple of of like arcs and and plans for the wall and where you're going to put things do a couple of measurements sometimes you end up taking blocks away you put some blocks back and it's a very organic process and i i really enjoy that like i don't necessarily have a final vision of how this is going to turn out like i would have if i was building a a square or a building in West Hill, I would have an idea of like what I want this to look like and how much space I want it to fill. And in this, it was just like, if this doesn't look the best, and if it doesn't fit this little area, I can just change the landscape. Like I can mm -hmm. just, I can add five blocks to the hill to make it look better. Or I can take away, you know, a couple hundred blocks from the hill because it was too steep and it would look silly with like one row of wheat, one path. And then like, next thing you know, you're going up a step. Like that doesn't seem efficient at all. So I flatten things out and, and to me, it feels like it still hugs the landscape, but it's it feels more um, man, not man made, but it feels more like landscaped by a person with intention, yeah. I guess, with intention. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Those terrace farms work so well in Minecraft because it's so difficult to simulate a rolling hill on the level of detail you need for a farm like this. Whereas right. terrace farms looking like this naturally, they always have those kind of rounded walls and edges that just make perfect sense to reproduce in a Minecraft landscape. So I think that's a really solid decision. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's um, it's coming together. And, and I, I think that as I add this and a couple of other farms coming into Westdale, it's really going to help frame the town so that as you're coming into town, you're going to see this town on the other side of stuff. Very similar to the images that you were sharing actually in the render distance in our pre-show from, you know, looking at mountains in France and they're behind the lake, behind some clouds, like adding that layered effect. Mm -hmm. And when you can do that in Minecraft, I think it's really effective. It makes the whole place feel like it's been lived in and that the town feels less plunked in the middle of a sunflower plains, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, there's there's some stuff you can do to work with the biome, but then stuff like this is always going to make it feel like the uh, the the hand of the player has touched it in a variety of different areas. So that's that's awesome. I think it's a a very cool look to it, and I might apply a similar technique to the area around where my starter base is because I've had little temporary wheat farms and crop farms and stuff going on for a little while, but a lot of the area around there is mountainous like there's meadow biomes nearby and sort of rolling hills but things that i could tear up in these different farms to to add in some some more permanent wheat fields later i might give that a go myself well i've got a number of examples that i've done around uh the uh the west hill valley and each time i feel like i learned something new you know each time i feel like oh it really helps when you add an actual wall like it, instead of just having a tier with dirt and then more crops it, it it looks better it feels like you have far less crops in the field but it looks better when you actually have like a stone wall or a wood wall or some sort of retaining situation because of the height difference like you mentioned being a full meter in blocks in minecraft it it makes uh makes more sense that there'd be something there holding that land back as opposed to just a simple 
you know, dirt block that's covered up by the different crops. Uh, also, I find that two tier crops work better than say just like a one, like a potato or a carrot. I find that things like wheat uh, or high grasses. I'm really looking forward to trying something with pitcher plants. Oh, I think yeah, that could be really mm -hmm. fun, too. Um, I don't I don't have a, a sniffer farm yet, but uh, other members of the server do. So uh, I might be able to figure that out. And for a one high crop, torch flowers are quite full and quite bright. And that could be a really interesting crop to put on a tiered farm as well. Uh, I don't know if if that would make sense. Like, I guess it, if it was like because I do have like a plans for a bee farm. So that could maybe make sense to have like more flowers and pollinating stuff uh, around a bee farm. But we'll we'll see. Yeah, I, I ended up using a couple of torch flowers in my interior decorations. I think they go really well with bookshelves as well. Like the variety of colors on display from a torch flower, I think, suits the bookshelf texture really well. So I think they're uh, underrated at this point with maybe not that many people having gotten around to uh, farming sniffers just for a couple of plants. I think they're probably a, uh, <laughs> a, a good addition. Moving on into the news, Minecraft Java Edition 1.20.2, pre-release 1 and 2 were out this week. Quoting the article, moving into pre-releases means that moving forward, you won't see any significant changes besides bug fixes and tweaks until the next snapshot cycle. It also means that we will be releasing more frequently than just on Wednesdays, so keep your eyes peeled. However, pre-release 1 brings new changes to the Villager Trade Rebalance Experiment, updates to recipe book search and command changes and a new game rule. 1.20.2 changes in pre-release 1. The recipe book search has been updated with the following changes. The search will only match the beginning of any word in the item's name. For example, searching for TOR will search now for torch and redstone torch, but not daylight detector anymore. All recipes, including those that have not been unlocked, will now show up in search results. This will enable experienced players to find the recipes they are looking for, even if it hasn't been unlocked yet, without overwhelming new players. Please note, this change has been reverted and put on hold as of pre-release 2. We'll get into that in just a little bit. Updated structure icons on Explorer maps sold by cartographers. And when villagers unlock new trades, the order of those trades in the UI is now always random instead of sometimes being deterministic. Technical changes in pre-release 1. The data pack version is now 18. Client options are now set during the configuration network phase when joining a server. Under data pack version 18, this data pack version removes the recently introduced execute if function and return run functionality. Flaws with those commands require some substantial changes to fix, which we do not want to make this close to release. These commands will instead be reintroduced early in the next snapshot series where we can take the time to iterate on them and test them together with pack makers. Removed execute if and unless function command form, removed return run command form, Numbers used as macro arguments are now always inserted with suffixes, regardless of numeric type, and added game rule ender pearl is vanish on death, controlling whether the thrown ender pearl vanishes when the player that threw them dies. The default is true. Experimental features in 1.20.2 pre-release 1. Villager Trade Rebalance Part 2. These experimental changes have no effect on normal worlds. If you want to try these changes, you must turn on the feature toggle in the experiments menu when creating a new world. 
Quoting the article, thank you to everyone that has sent in their suggestions and feedback regarding the experimental trade change. We are trying out these changes to rebalance the villager trade system and make it more fair and fun for everyone. However, these changes are not yet final and they will stay as experimental features while we continue to work on them. We appreciate your feedback on these changes. They, of course, have included a link for that feedback. Uh, villager trading feedback is going to be linked in our show notes as well as in the article on Minecraft.net. Changes to the cartographer. Before now, cartographers only sold maps to ocean monuments and woodland mansions. In this experiment, cartographers can sell seven new maps as well. These new maps each point to a different village or structure and can be used to find several different biomes. This will help players who want to quickly find a specific location without waiting until they come across it by chance. Cartographers from different biomes will sell a different selection of maps. Starting from one village, it will be possible to find every other village type by following maps from village to village. Cartographers now sell seven new maps. Desert Village Map, Jungle Explorer Map, Plains Village Map, Savannah Village Map, Snow Village Map, Swamp Explorer Map, and Taiga Village Map. There is a table uh, that we'll include in our show notes, also in the Minecraft.net article, that explains which map is found in which biome and how you could chain those together. Changes to the armor. The biggest change is that buying diamond armor now requires paying a small amount of diamonds as well as emeralds. This is meant to make the armor's diamond armor trades less useful at the start of the game when players don't have any diamonds, while still giving a powerful advantage to players who have spent some time collecting diamonds. Early game players will find armors useful as a great source of iron armor, shields, and emeralds. Other changes include most master level armors buy iron blocks for four emeralds. Chain mail armor is now exclusively sold to by the secret jungle and swamp armorers. The Savannah armorer sells cursed diamond armor and reduce at reduced prices. The Taiga armorer can swap one piece of diamond armor for another. Mojang has provided a table for the experimental armor trades at the Minecraft.net article. In, in the press release, we'll also have an image in our show notes at thespawnchunks.com. Structure loot. Certain enchanted books now have a high chance of generating in some structures. Ancient cities have a chance to spawn mending. Mine shafts, efficiency, one through five. Pillager outposts, quick charge, one to three. Desert temples, unbreaking, one to three. And jungle temples, unbreaking, one to three. Some fixed bugs of note, in 1.20.2 pre-release 1, sometimes armor stands wouldn't update their visual rotation. Vertical redstone dust placed against droppers, dispensers, and hoppers doesn't visually disappear when the dust above is removed. Redstone comparators can cause redstone dust connection issues. Regular golden apples don't increase the number of gold hearts if you previously ate an enchanted golden apple and then took damage. And a missing sprite error in the loom GUI, loom.png, the full list of bugs, including the host of UI and technical fixes that they made, can be found in the Minecraft.net article linked in our show notes. 
1.20.2 pre-release 2 was released on Thursday, September 7th and includes a brief explanation of the recipe book Search Revert. Quote, We received a lot of great feedback on the changes to the recipe book Search in the last pre-release as well as a number of bugs. As we do not have time to address this feedback so close to release, we've reverted the change for now, but we may look into this again at a later time. There is one technical change in 1.20.2 pre-release 2. The resource pack version is now 18, accounting for the new icons in the last pre-release. Fixed bugs of note in pre-release 2 include newly rendered players always looking south until they move their head, which means no more broken necks when your server mates spawn in. You couldn't tab out of the console text field of a command block, and the narrator would narrate incorrect tab actions in the command block suggestions. That's now been fixed as well. Screenshots wider than 16,384 pixels were causing a crash, so good news to those of you who play on a projector or any kind of very, very high-resolution monitor. Recipe book searches no longer find anything containing non-English characters, which is probably one of the reasons that they've decided to revert the change. The recipe book search was also no longer finding relevant items in languages where compound words were not separated, and they didn't find anything where a space was included in the search either. So once again, a couple of things that have been reverted in the most recent pre-release so that they can work on those a little later. Uncraftable variants of a craftable recipe were shown as craftable. Uh, that's also now been fixed, along with boats and rafts turning south when placed, fire under naturally generated end crystals not always emitting light correctly, and mobs sometimes becoming invisible when you join a single-player world. Once again, there are a bunch more bugs in pre-release 2 that have been fixed. A full list of those is in the Minecraft.net article linked in our show notes. So I think this week it's going to be a good idea to talk about the changes to the cartographers and the armorers in our main discussion later on. So outside of that, what are your impressions of the pre-release one and two that came out this past week? Well, one real note on the villager changes is that if they're still in the experimental tab in a pre-release, that seems to indicate that they aren't actually arriving with 1.20.2. Um, which makes sense, right? Like, we've been talking about these as though they are the 1.20.2 changes, but it seems like there is still a lot of community feedback gathering going on. Maybe not enough people have tried it in certain situations, or maybe they just want to work on a few things that are going to help to rebalance villager trades across the board. Like, we didn't realize that there were going to be changes to the cartographer and the armorer as well when they introduced changes to librarians. So it may be that they're shuffling a lot of different trades around and making villager trading a very more like a biome-centric experience for other villager types as well. Uh, but that remains to be seen, and it seems like we're not going to get that in 1.20.2. I would not be surprised if they arrive with a future dot release, if there's 1.20.3 or so. Um, but depending on when the next update arrives, we could be waiting as long as 1.21. It seems like the kind of thing that they would still make a couple of changes in the dot releases because these aren't tentpole features of a, a big update necessarily, and this is the kind of change they said they would make in the minor releases for a major update, but I think it's uh, fair to say that we're not going to be seeing them in the next couple of weeks when 1.20.2 actually arrives. Uh, I have a couple of thoughts about the structure loot changes, which I'll save for the main discussion as well, because I think it really ties in with the rebalance of villagers. But the fact that enchanted books are uh, generating in certain structures now is uh, giving me a little bit of hope for the overall balance of the librarian trades. Yeah, I agree that, that these... Um these experimental changes are, are going to be re remaining experimental until, like they said, the next snapshot cycle. So I, I we're not going to see them in, in 1.20.2. But 
Uh, I am curious about the recipe book search change because I thought that was a good change. Uh, I thought changing the book to, to look up the things alphabetically makes sense to me. And uh, I've always thought that the search was a little bit cluttered in Minecraft when you're looking for a torch and you type in T-O-R, but then the actual torch is like not at the top of your search. It's like at the in the middle somewhere, you know, like it's not the first thing that comes up despite the fact that it starts with T-O-R. So it doesn't quite function the way that you would expect it to. I can see, however, how you would want all the torches to come up. So you want to see a redstone torch as well as a torch and redstone torch starts with R-E-D, right? So I can see how they might want to be looking at it for the things that they mentioned, you know, in the bugs that you picked out as well with like the um, other languages and hyphenated words not working correctly. Um, but I like the idea of at the very least having the start of each word be something that you could use to search for something. Because if you type in T-O-R for torch, I would want all of the torches to be like the first thing that comes up in your search query, right? Yeah, yeah. Same goes for stone. If you type S-T-O-N, then you're getting stone, but you're also getting cobblestone, you're also getting redstone, and it's pretty clear that all you wanted was natural stone to begin with. Um, and not to mention all of the chiseled stone bricks and the kind of stuff that's going to come up. So it does make sense that they are keying it into individual words in something that might have multiple names so like if i type stone it's still going to come up with chiseled stone brick but since redstone is just a the stone in redstone is a part of that word instead of it being two separate words then that kind of makes sense but i can definitely see how that runs into a lot of obstacles when you're translating it to other languages especially considering that a lot of the translation work initially at least i'm not sure if this is still the case but a great deal of it was done by volunteers and so some of the translations might need to be approved and double checked and it suddenly piles a lot more work onto mojang to make sure that it's functional for people of all languages so yeah they're definitely worth not throwing in at the last second which you know this is probably something they've been working on behind the scenes for a little while but seems like there are a lot of edge cases where it could go very wrong for people so it makes sense to hold it back until they've done a bit more testing on that front yeah i, I would agree and and i'm looking forward to it because i think it's a good quality of life change and it's one of those things where it's a quality of life change I didn't expect and I didn't know was on their radar. And mm. now that I do, I'm very excited for it. Like, it's, yeah. it seems like such a simple thing. But when you're in late game like I am and have been for years, like it just you go in and like I, could, I even had to type in how to make uh, andesite the other day. I was just like, what? like, I tried to do it and I tried to do it in a four by four grid. And that's not how you do it. And I was just like, what? I know these are the right ingredients. How do I do it? Oh, it's yeah. just one to one. I didn't remember that. But I did it because I wa I went into a a, a crafting table and i type in and and i was like oh there it is got it mm -hmm. <laughs> you know and then you got a uh, bunch so of that... things that were related to sand and sandstone and stuff exactly. as well i imagine yeah yeah there's a whole bunch i had to look for the and now they do at least they do the thing where it's highlighted in white if you have the things in your inventory to make yeah. it right so because the only thing i was carrying was basically diorite and cobblestone it was like oh this is what you want right here and that would be an interesting way that they could do that, too, is like instead of just sorting alphabetically, if they put the things that you have the materials for first, I don't know how complicated that is. Right now they highlight it, but if they actually move that to the top, then that could be interesting, too. Um, but I guess it, it depends on, I mean, if you're looking something up, you're probably, you probably don't have all of the things in your inventory because you don't remember how to make it, you know? So I can see there being like a, a bunch of different criteria that they'd have to apply to the search.
Yeah, yeah. But after the changes they made to reordering the creative mode inventory and stuff, it makes sense that they're also looking at quality of life for people searching for blocks in survival and that kind of thing. Like, it does does make a lot of sense to address the recipe book uh, since then. And it loses all functionality if Pirate Speak is on. Yeah, <laughs> as, as most <laughs> things do, I imagine, including <laughs> myself. Um, let's move on into Chunk Mail this week. We've got a couple of listener emails to talk through, mostly related to these villager changes, which are, of course, on a lot of people's minds in recent weeks. If you'd like to email the show, remember our Chunk Mail Dispenser episode is coming up next week, so we're looking for some short and sweet emails from the community that we can make a little discussion out of each one. The email address is spawnchunkmail at gmail.com. The first email comes in from Sunnybrook1, who is a landscape artist member of our Discord, and the subject is Llama-Powered Villager Transportation. Hey Joel and Pix, while listening to part two of the discussion regarding the changes to villager trades, I was wondering if there could be a mechanic that smoothed the frustration of moving villagers to make villager trading in the game even more engaging. My preferred playstyle is nomadic, world mapper, and trailblazer, literally smoothing the land and making trails along which I can traverse interesting landscapes on foot without the need to jump up blocks, with occasional storage, base, and bridge building. While I acknowledge the power of villager trading, sticking around the same place to grind out the resources to unlock all the trades isn't interesting to me. If I could instead bring villagers with me on my journey, give them names, go on adventures together, build homes for the ones I don't need anymore, and grind as I go, that is far more appealing. Llamas already accompany the wandering trader, so why not allow tamed llamas that have a bed in their inventory and the ability to attract and carry jobless villagers or villager children? A bed plus the appropriate workstation could be used to attract employed villagers. For added customization, control, and for balance, I'd prevent villagers from trading while riding a llama. And while the caravan limit for one llama on a lead is 9, there is no limit to the number of llamas you can lead caravans for, so the potential size of large caravans should be big enough to meet even the most technical players' needs. What do you think, Joel? Ready to make some furry, spitting friends? Sunnybrook One leads their travelling trading hall caravan on a tour throughout their world. Well, we wouldn't run out of llama meat on our journey <laughs> so that's that's good i'm thinking uh, this oregon trail sort of scenario where you have to kill the oxen or whatever right it's yeah it's that but exactly. with llamas is what you're getting exactly i just watched a western on the weekend too oh, so did you? That, that <laughs> yeah right yeah, news of the world with tom hanks great movie uh, -huh. uh i i really dislike wrangling villagers wrangling llamas with wonky leads in minecraft is even below that uh -huh. so <laughs> this isn't something that i would be on board for it's an interesting idea I, the, the general idea of transporting villagers in game in a way that's reliable is, I think, something that would appeal to a lot of people that are frustrated with the proposed experimental changes with the different villagers in different biomes being where you find, you know, these different trades. And I think one of the challenges there is traveling into the wilderness with villagers that you've worked really hard at trading with to have them attacked, drowned, fall off a cliff, get stuck, potentially lost or die, sounds like the exact opposite of how I would want to deal with villagers. And I think that's one of the reasons why people put them in little villager hotels, uh, put, to put it lightly, because it means that you can guarantee at, mostly that this villager is going to be safe unless something spawns in your villager hotel and then you're all dealing with that. Um, the other thing that to me is is a, a bit of a turnoff. Now, this is a subjective thing is can you imagine the noise of <laughs> this many llamas and yeah. this many like snort, spit, honk, snort, her, spit, honk. Like it just I would go crazy. Uh, 
I would have to turn down the, the noises completely because that would just drive me uh, nuts. Now, if there was some other way to do it, and this is kind of a cheeky answer, but like the idea of having something like a villager trading sand crawler from Star Wars, you know, like something where the villagers could be in them. Uh, we don't have any kind of vehicles in Minecraft outside of minecarts. Uh, maybe minecarts are a, a good way to transport villagers in the future somehow, but it's it's not going to fit the playstyle that Sunnybrook One has, uh, which is like that meandering uh, trailblazer, right? And so pulling things around by hand, like I don't find leads very reliable. And I would imagine that if if you know they said that this would be meet the needs of most technical players, I don't think Minecraft can handle like thirty villagers on llamas on leads on like whatever you'd want to do to bring these things around I, I don't see that being a viable solution technically i don't know for sure anybody that does know feel free to correct me but i i don't really think that that's um how it would be solved on a positive note i really like the playstyle that's going on that's a really interesting way to interact with the minecraft world it's very kind of i can imagine it being very chill you know like you're walking through the forest you realize it's a pretty section of the forest so you make a road, you make a path, you decorate a little bit. And then the next time you walk back through that area, you take the road that you made because you know it's a pretty view. And I think that's really, really cathartic, you know? And I can understand the frustration of a player that does want to meander around the Minecraft world like that, does want to engage in the villagers, but doesn't want to set up shop. And, and I guess the solution there is like, build yourself little villages along the way to house and protect the villagers that you've traded up with and then you, to go back and trade with them at least you can follow the path you're not going to get lost looking for the swamp that you found and traded with villagers in because you probably have created a, a system a road system where you can find your way back um, but yeah it's it's an interesting idea i just i don't think llamas are the are the solution I think I'm sort of on the fence about this one. I'm I'm, I'm sort of closer to thinking of it as a, a solid idea because this, for a start, it would breathe new life and utility into llamas as a mob, which I really think have been overlooked more generally. Like, they are good for being pack animals, and the caravan mechanic is surprisingly robust. I think it's second only to allays in terms of, like, their tenacity in following you once you're leading one of them. And being able to grab one on a lead and then all of the other llamas kind of fall in line with it, that's a, a pretty decent mechanic. Like, people don't use it often enough because more often than not they get better transport options a lot quicker. But I do think there's there's some merit to it. Um, I My question really is how you would make the villagers dismount once you got them where you needed them. I mean, like, maybe removing whatever items are attracting them to the llama's inventory, but I don't know if it really works for villagers ai right now to be attracted to an item that is in a inventory somewhere like in, in inside the inventory of a moving entity as well that seems like a, a bit more complicated in terms of programming but yeah i i think it's it's a it's a, a neat idea and would add some variety to the potential options for villager transportation where you know boats and minecarts and so forth are still a bit of an option and outside of sunnybrook one becoming a rail baron it seems like the one that's going to fit that kind of play style a little better uh, to quote g the b from our snapshot chat because i thought this was a, a pretty funny comment you you're not really going to find an easier way of moving villagers outside of a pokeball or a lead uh, neither of which you know <laughs> mojang is interested in doing for for obvious reasons um but yeah, even the notion of villagers following you if you're holding certain items, like people suggested, like, if you hold a block of emerald, then maybe a villager follows you in the same way that, like, you know, animals, like, 
holding, right. holding wheat in that lot of wood. But, you know, it comes with the same issues of if you get a few blocks away, you're moving faster than the, the entity that's following you does. They simply lose interest because you get far enough away and they just kind of wander off. So fixing them to a form of transport that you are leading, it circumvents the problem of you literally like attaching a lead to a villager and dragging around this, you know, effectively analog for humankind uh, inside of Minecraft. And it circumvents that quite neatly whilst allowing llamas to become a little bit more useful again. And the fact that there's already established precedent for the wandering trader arriving with llamas means that it works law-wise and it potentially means the mechanics aren't completely unfathomable to new players, right? You'd imagine that there is a connection between llamas and villager kind already, and it's just a matter of bringing the two together and figuring out how they interact. Um, if you... The, the, the difficult part then, I think, is making sure that players know to add a bed and whatever to a llama's inventory. Um, so there could be a slightly more elegant way of doing it than that, but I, I, I think the idea has potential. And I can imagine with a lot of people wanting to move villagers around, people getting frustrated that they can't ride a horse with a villager or you know mount a villager up on a camel so they're not going to get attacked by zombies en route, that kind of thing. The only thing I can think of that might work more than a bed is right now there's nothing that you can do with a villager to add to its inventory visually uh, in the same way that you have inventory for like a camel or a, or a horse or a llama that can have like a carpet on them and change their color. I wonder if you could give carpet to a villager and give him a cape. And if it was the, if it was the same cape, like if it matched the llama, then maybe that would indicate to the villager I'm supposed to get on that. Sure, because yeah. I can't think of like to get a villager in a boat, you kind of have to hit it with a boat and mine carts. You have to ram them with a mine cart. So like, how do you get a villager on a llama when you can't control the llama, like pull the llama on a lead through a villager? Like, good luck. You yeah. know, I, I think that <laughs> there has to be some sort of indication where it turns into a llama villager or I, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure exactly how I, that would work. I like, I like that the idea with the carpet of like you're going to be on the red team now, and they get like a red bib as though they're like yeah. you know on different <laughs> soccer teams or playing like you know tag yeah. rugby or whatever, and you just kind of throw them on like the 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 color coded llama with the same designation. Uh, I feel like that almost makes it. I don't know. I don't want to say too easy because obviously people get frustrated wrangling villagers and it does make sense to make mechanics a little bit more accessible that way. But yeah, I, I, I sort of wonder if that's almost too straightforward in a sense. Mm. I, don't, I, I don't know. It's it's difficult, but I think people are going to be finding lots of fun ways of moving villagers around. I personally recommend um, sticking them in a boat and then using a slime block flying machine because uh, that's how I got them from the central end islands out oh, to the, yeah. uh, the the outer end islands to make a village in the end once, and that's, that's a lot of fun. It's convincing the villager to get to a height where you can do that in the overworld without colliding with any terrain that's on the way, but uh, yeah, slime block flying machines are an underrated way of moving villagers in my opinion yeah bubble column you can get a villager up pretty safely with a bubble column yeah yeah i, I reckon in the so. overworld because because they can breathe when they're in it right like they don't they yes. don't take any damage yeah, when yeah, they're going yeah. up so that's how i've moved some villagers in, in other situations before but i don't know if, if they're going to be puttering along on llamas or something like that i feel like they have to make a different noise like i'd be okay with them making like race car noises or like little you know like motorbike noises or something like that as they travel at the speed of snot because yeah. like llamas <laughs> are not that fast like i just it would be there has to be some sort of entertainment value in it um 
because I, I do feel like it would end up being pretty frustrating. But it's it's an interesting idea nonetheless. Yeah, I think it's quite an original one. I think it's good to see people yes. coming up with some some very Minecrafty feeling solutions to what is currently 100%. A, a very kind of community-focused problem. Moving on to our next email coming in from CJRV Williams, the challenges of development. Hi, Joel and Pix. With another round of villager updates being released, I've noticed one of the criticisms being made is that these changes make some items even more unobtainable in super flat worlds and peaceful worlds. To me, this is one of the challenges of development for a game with a broad, diverse, and beautiful uh, player base such as Minecraft. This challenge presents to me a two-part question. A. How do the devs balance maintaining a game with so many playstyles and game modes beyond just survival and creative? And at what point should these other playstyles and game modes be supplemented or replaced with mods, data packs, and the like, similar to how Skyblock is treated? And B, how can we as players give Mojang the best feedback from our in-snapshot experiences? I've noticed an immense amount of vitriol between players because of the villager changes. I think some of it stems from the fact that they feel that their preferred playstyle isn't being considered or heard by others. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on how we as a community can give useful feedback as well as continue our quest to keep our communities as wonderful worlds that they are. Excited to hear your thoughts. Cheers. CJ paddled off into the sunset, humming sea shanties while dodging phantoms in search of new biomes to explore. Yeah, it's a, a good two-part question. <laughs> and I think to address the first point of this, something that came to my attention in the episode I released on Friday where I mentioned super flat survival in a video about cobblestone generators, um, people in the comments let me know that on Bedrock Edition, super flat worlds do not, and as far as I know, cannot generate structures. Um, and so super flat survival as a Bedrock Edition game mode is basically dead in the water. So given that nine-tenths of sales of Minecraft were Bedrock Edition, we can assume that the super flat player base is a fraction of a fraction of Minecraft players. And at that point for the devs, it becomes a numbers game, really. It's the kind of thing where you're only going to be affecting a very, very minute portion of the player base that likes to play this way and relies on certain mechanics playing that way. So in service of balance changes that affect the broader game of survival, which many more players are playing, it kind of makes sense to do that for the greater good of that game and for the players who are used to playing super flat and not having access to certain features anyway to continue playing the way they always have done and accept the limitations of the format. If you consider that on Superflat Survival, there is only ever one biome which is plains, unless you make some changes to the world beforehand and add a layer of sand or a layer of stone or whatever, at which point you're effectively just building up Minecraft's natural terrain anyway, but you end up with whole genres of blocks not being accessible to you, like concrete, for example. Like, good luck building with that in Survival Superflat, where there is no sand. You can buy glass from villager trading, so you can get plenty of that, but you can't get various other things. You know, cactus is virtually non-existent, so you can't get green anything. You know, there are so many little things like that, which, you know, perhaps looking at those and examining that could prompt Mojang to change super flat world generation and add the option to map natural overworld biomes across a super flat world instead of it all just being a single plains biome and just that be a toggle that you can switch on and off depending on what you want to use the world for but for creative mode it makes sense to just have like a big open flat sandboxy kind of area but in survival contexts 
you can play that in a variety of different ways um but yeah that that is i think the point at which if you are unhappy with what's available doing what the skyblock map makers have done doing what dr trog does with skyblock four point whatever it is at this stage um makes a lot of sense you know have certain mobs drop sand as a drop and then you can build a mob farm to creatively gather more of it and add a bit of the grind and your own resourcefulness and a bit of technical minecraft play back in in order to supplement the uh the the lack of those features in the the super flat format um i think it it makes a lot of sense for mojang to focus on survival gameplay in general and then for the community that has championed game modes like super flat survival or maps like skyblock to innovate within the community themselves instead of relying on mojang to hand down wisdom from on high about how that should be done yeah i i couldn't say it better myself i i think that it's an it's a numbers game you know mojang is developing for the people that play the game in survival and in creative mode and to your point about data packs too like i think if super flat or peaceful players are passionate about these changes and they're really frustrated with them like that's what data packs were designed for uh, i think that they're meant to to augment the game and bring other rules within the game into different modes and do that without the need for mods you can still play the latest release of minecraft with your data pack as long as the data pack version is up to date and and have those changes be be brought in uh, i think that you know players that are really into something like crazy mob farms are just not going to play peaceful mode like it just it just wouldn't appeal and i think that if you are a player that's playing peaceful mode but then you're complaining that you know these changes are are making it even less playable for you. I, I think you're already, as you mentioned, Pix, in in a bottlenecked version of the game. So you're kind of, you know, beating your fists against a brick against a brick wall. Like what did you expect? You're 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 not gonna be able to get through, you know, a peaceful playthrough with all of the features of a survival playthrough. That's you know that from the get-go. So I think that, you know, in terms of player feedback, which was mentioned earlier, um you have to consider where your feedback is being presented from and like is is your situation the kind of situation that is going to require a lot you know attention from mojang or are you you know complaining about being hot in the desert you know what i mean like it just it you're already you've already chosen a limited version of the game I don't think that you really have much of a uh, of a box to stand on if yeah. you're complaining about these changes, right? You've, you've kind of made your bed at that point, I think. Yes. yes. Yeah. 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 Um, and as for the second part of the question, how to give Mojang the best feedback from in snapshot experiences, I think the trap people fall into a lot is imagining that all feedback has to take place in a setting where there is a dialogue and other people can shoot down your suggestions and ideas and play devil's advocate and argue about a lot of this stuff. And that's simply not the case when it comes to providing direct feedback to Mojang, which is most often done through the feedback site, the official feedback.minecraft.net, which I know has a comments section attached to it, but it is probably the place where the majority of feedback that is submitted will be heard directly by people at Mojang who can forward that on to the development team if they see trends emerging within it or if they see people making cogent points about the development of the game. 
And I think it's worth noting that, you know, if you're going to leave feedback uh, at the site that that Mojang has provided, then make sure it's constructive. Yeah. You know, make sure you give reasons and have an articulate presentation. Just getting on social media or getting into Reddit or other platforms, Discord, you know, conversations and just saying this sucks. I don't like it. Does no good to anybody. You know, like you're not communicating any potentially, you know, constructive feedback that Mojang could then use. And I mean, we know that Mojang listens like we've we've seen the the comment in the article that the feedback for the experimental changes of villagers has been uh, vast and there's a lot to consider. And as a result, that is not going to be in this snapshot cycle. They're moving it. They're keeping it as experimental and it will be iterated on in the next snapshot cycle with no indication as to when it might end up in the game, if at all. Right. Like bundles to learn in the game. So I, I think that's it's important to note that Mojang does listen. But if you want your voice heard, it's important to take the proper channels, because with the sheer volume of people that play Minecraft, Mojang has to do like they have to narrow it down somehow. Right. They have to just say, look, we're only going to look at this funnel. Use this funnel to give us feedback. That's what we're looking at. And I, and I think that that's the, the best course of action that anybody can take is just, you know, provide constructive feedback in the avenue that Mojang has requested that you do and and hope, you know, kind of hope that your voice is heard, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And obviously this has all been leading up to our discussion topic this week, which is talking about the most recent raft of these experimental changes to cartographers and armorers, which I don't think anyone was really expecting. But um, I think to start with the cartographer stuff, um, I think it's a really smart move. It's kind of an unexpected change, but we talked previously about how difficult it is for players to get any in-game indication that jungle and swamp villagers exist. And this is not only a way to make the cartographer more fundamentally useful, but it points out where villagers are, which now means there's a reason to track down those different villages because of the different trades and finding a village in-game helps you find another one as long as you're willing to engage with it long enough to buy a map from a cartographer. It also indicates to players that swamps and jungles are involved somehow. It's notable that they are swamp and jungle explorer maps rather than specifically desert village maps and, you know, tiger village maps. But if anything, that feels like a nice lore consideration in a sense like it hints maybe that villagers sent out groups to try and settle those biomes and they were unsuccessful in some way that maybe they got overrun and that's why there are zombie villagers there like i kind of like the idea of the cartographer leading us to those places but with a different reason as to why exactly yeah, I, I like the idea of them selling more maps. It makes sense. It lines up with vanilla Minecraft. You know, we've mentioned a number of times that in-game ways of telling players where to find these things is desirable. And this is a perfectly solid in-game way of doing it. Uh, yeah. Like it's, there's no, there's no, it, you don't even need words. Like it's just a map. It's just a picture, you know, follow, follow the yellow brick road, you know? Yeah. People have asked in the past for there to be some in-game way of seeing where a slime chunk is <laughs> and this is more or less the next best thing which is a cartographer selling you a map to a swamp um there are a few really useful resources in swamp it's where you find slimes on the surface at night you find frogs blue orchids only ever grow there mm -hmm. like there's there's a few swamp unique things that you know you feel like with the changes to terrain generation jungles are rarely 
that infrequent. Like, I, I find a lot of jungles in my worlds when I explore now. I think the ones that have become rare have been deserts, but now you have a chance for a cartographer to sell you a map to a desert that you might not have found, or a swamp that might just be tucked away somewhere and didn't really come up on your radar until now. So I think having a few of those around is actually a, a pretty smart move. Wouldn't do it for every biome, because there are about 50 biomes that they'd have to sell maps to at that point, but I think it's a, a, a pretty pretty successful way of encouraging players to find specific biomes and if you're like our previous correspondent and you want to just blaze a trail through the world it maybe mm. gives you a bit of a direction without loading too much terrain around you and conserving that for uh, you know other times when you might want to go further afield and explore new additions in future updates it's funny that was something that came up in one of my discord conversations was the the fact that some players don't want to load unnecessary chunks and i and i think that that's one of the things that i like so much about the cartographer changes is that it overlaps with like there's that complaint of like not wanting to go and try to find all these biomes for the librarians uh, or now the armorers but with the cartographer you're going to have to go look for this stuff anyway so you might as well have a map mm -hmm. and i think that it removes that chance it removes that reliance on random chance or the um the, the seed in minecraft where you might just walk by a desert and not realize it and be looking forever because you just just didn't catch it whereas if you had a map that said by the way the desert is just over there then it removes that chance and i mean i'm someone that plays minecraft with a map mod because i really feel like minecraft should just have one after you reach endgame and to me that has helped immensely when i've opened up a new world uh or updated the citadel and wanted to find a mangrove swamp or wanted to find you know uh, another biome like a, a cherry grove because i'm i've got limited time on stream i'm flying around with my elytra and i open up the map and i look for a giant pink patch you know and that to me is is how the game should function so barring going into you know mods and data packs I feel like having cartographers give you a map to say, hey, look, this is where you're going to find stuff is great. I also like the idea that they leapfrog it. So like you're not going to have a cartographer in a plains biome give you every map. They're going to give you three, I think, or two. And then from those maps, you will find new cartographers that will give you new maps. And so you can branch out from there. And it's a really neat way of encouraging players to explore, look for different biomes and not have it be this is just a cartographer and i've found a new village in a taiga but what are the chances that this person is going to give me a map to a taiga that i'm already in because it's random right and that's not the case that taiga villager is a cartographer is going to give you a there's only options for a certain amount of maps and they're going to take you farther not send you in a loop which i think is really smart yeah, like if you visit a plains biome, you get the opportunity to buy a map to a tiger and then the tiger can direct you to a swamp. And then if you cure a villager there and turn them into a cartographer, the swamp directs you to the jungle or the snowy village or, you know, there's there's like it loops. And I, I think that's that's a really, really smart way of doing that. So, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that's that's a uh, a, a solid decision um, to to expand the cartographer's trades. I think the armorer is perhaps the more controversial of the two because what this does is change armorer's expert and master level trades to exclude the diamond armor trades that we are used to, the ones which are typically a full set of diamond armor once you get a, an armorer to a certain level, and instead changes them for 
diamond armor that often has undesirable things, like the Savannah armorer only ever trading you cursed items, I think is a, a really, it's a strange decision, but one which, again, changes the way we interact with these villagers and means that you are no longer going to be able to rely on a single group of villagers, encourages you to again, go out and explore and find some of these other villagers, whether you're led there by a cartographer map or you just go to a different village in, in the course of exploration, and you're going to find different trades waiting for you when you get there. So one thing that I just popped into my head about something, are these enchantments on the expert armors the only enchantment? Or is it this is a guaranteed and then there could be others? Or is it just this is the one thing you're going to get on this piece of armor? That's something I would have to check in game because it's not something that I've mm. really noticed, like pop it's not up in any of these table. discussions. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I've, I've not seen anybody confirm or deny that. Yeah, but if curse, if you're in a savanna that happens to be where you started, or that happens to be where you find your first village, and you get this curse of binding, make a grindstone, remove the enchantment. Uh, you can't remove curses though. You can't even do that oh, in the right. inventory anymore, which is something oh, that I noticed right. most recently when I was messing around with this. Never Pre mind. Previously, anything enchanted curses or whatever you could combine two pieces of armor, whether you to repair them, and it would right. remove curse of binding or, or vanishing, but it doesn't do that anymore. Which, yeah, it right. is, is, is a bit of a shame. But then there are five or six other types of village that you can go to to get similar equipment and it doesn't necessarily come with those curses. Plus, if you go to a savannah, you get a bunch of cursed uh, armor, then you go to a tiger biome. Can you then trade in the cursed armor to the tiger biome villager who will swap it for a different piece? So if you bring them a helmet, will they give you some boots that aren't cursed? Um, right. So, so there's, there's potential for you to facilitate almost what feels like trade between villages instead of you know, a villager giving you currency and you taking that currency somewhere else and buying something completely different, which, you know, adds some certain dynamic to trading. I don't know if it's necessarily going to feel all that great to do, um, but but I'm, I'm curious about it and I'm curious about how it feels. Uh, one thing I will highlight just based on the table of experimental armor trays that they've laid out is that similar to the Enchanted books, they have given the armor enchantments that feel very thematically tied to the biome take the desert armor set that you can trade from the armorer all of the armor has thorns which makes perfect sense for an environment surrounded by cactus right it's sort of them taking cues from their natural environment to enchant it with something that feels like a thematic way of them protecting themselves from stuff um the snow biome ones will trade you aqua affinity and Frostwalker. Uh, boots and, and helmet. Um, the swamp ones all come with mending except for the master level trades that come with respiration and depth strider. So that there's a really neat balance I think of you know the, the enchantments leading into thematic elements about the about the village whilst also making them desirable for players up to a point and then allowing the player to take the lead from there. So the the one I think beef i would have about the swamp mending trade well it makes sense it's also mending on chainmail. it's yeah. not iron armor <laughs> is, right like yes. it's just it's just chainmail armor and so they've got both jungle and swamp as the only places that you can get chainmail by trading uh, with with a villager which i can appreciate at the lower levels because you might you might want that for decorative stuff putting it on armor stands you know decorating your castle or something like that yeah. but but to go down and to have the expert level be just more chainmail with mending i that's kind of a 
of a letdown. And I, I'll put a big asterisk here. I mean, I'm coming at this with a bit of a devil's advocate argument because I really don't have a lot of stock in villager trades. Like it's not something I engage with in game very much. So I don't really have a heavy opinion either way. I'm just kind of picking some of the arguments that I've seen in, in my community and in the Spongebob community and kind of putting them forward. Um, because I think that while they've laid things out in this table and when you take the time to look at each one and each tier and compare them all, they're virtually identical up until you get into expert. Like yeah. everybody at the novice levels kind of gives you the same. It's all the same values. The only exceptions are the swamp and the jungle that have the um, the chainmail armor. Uh, but everything, you know, like the bells, the shields, they're all the same price, all that kind of stuff. Uh, bucket of lava, lava gives you one emerald, that kind of thing. Um, it's only once you get into the expert level that they start to trade for the different curses but again or the different the different enchantments including the curses but the prices are all the same so it's not like there's one cheap biome versus another they're all roughly the same across the board i think the challenge here is that if you are someone that wanted to take advantage of this knowing what armor traded for what uh enchantment is a matter of trial and error in the game or a matter of finding the information outside of the game and i think it does add you know another thing to look up on the internet before you get into your villager trading hall or whatever it is that you wanted to do if you're a completionist or if you're trying to do something and you're you have limited playtime, then i think that this is yet another thing that you have to then go outside uh to figure out not the whole table but like the the expert table you're you before you spend all the time setting things up you're going to want to know do i have to go to a desert do i have to go to a savannah like wh like where do i need to go to avoid the curse of binding or to find Frostwalker, all that kind of stuff um i think it's true and, and nice that they line things up like Frostwalker and aqua affinity being in the snowy biome uh that kind of stuff makes sense um but i think that you know as someone coming off of several streams playing starfield where i'm basically playing the the menus mini game um this kind of depth in a game i think can be communicated better in game to players like i feel like sometimes this stuff is just added you've got these great developer notes that tell people that are reading the snapshot notes and stuff like that but when it comes to the actual release and these changes like how does mojang communicate that to players in a way that's meaningful rather than just leaving it up to yet more trial and error, you know, which is, I think something that people that have limited playtime are probably trying to avoid because the conversation that I saw happening in my discord was people that either don't have time to, or don't like to do a lot of exploring in Minecraft, whether it's a time constraint, whether it's a, a fact that they don't want to create a super big world as they wander around, um, that kind of stuff, it just, it really doesn't provide any value for, for those players. And one of the comments that I remember seeing was improving villager trading is not the same as creating tedium or make busy work for players. And it's a subjective comment. Like, I mean, whether you find this tedious, whether you find it time consuming, whether you're willing to put in that time is, is really up to you. But this is where I think that these kind of things could be you know, done in a way where more than one avenue could be presented. I don't know how that's done off the top of my head. I'm not sure how we communicate to players that, you know, these these guys are in different biomes. Like, it's weird how the cartographer is such a smooth addition and just seems to make sense, right? Whereas now, you know, with the armors, like you're 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 back again to like, well, which which way do I go? 
to find the right armor. Whereas which way do I go to find a right biome? Talk to the map maker. Like that makes sense. And I think as a player, that would be kind of like, if you were into villager trading, that would be the first thing that you would notice. Like, oh, the cartographers sell maps to different biomes. But then how do you indicate for that player that's trading with their first armorer that this is not the only way and not the only thing that they give you, right? Yeah, yeah, I can I can see that. I think for the people who the people who don't want to spend so much time doing the trial and error stuff, that's where research like this comes in. And I would argue that these changes only look complex because we are used to a system which is currently very simple, which is that every armorer is going to give you a full set of diamond armor by the time you've traded with them all the way. And it's never going to come with curses, um, which is currently the way it is in 1.20.1 and, and previous. And I think these kind of... Like, if we all came into Minecraft with all of these changes already in effect, we would very quickly adapt to this sort of situation and understand what the the best path through it was. Like, players are always going to find the thing where, like there's the path of least resistance right you know the water is mm -hmm. always going to flow downhill a certain way so i think looking at this table the most sensible thing to do is you trade with a plains villager until you get the diamond boots and the diamond leggings you trade with a savannah villager so that you get the cursed helmet and uh, chest plate for as cheap emeralds as possible and as cheap diamonds as possible you take those to a tiger villager trade the full set in for a full set of diamond armor and you're good to go um and yes you need to have diamonds in order to purchase diamond armor now but at that point if you've gone mining for those diamonds then you probably just want to create your own armor set anyway at which point you saved yourself the hassle of trading with all of these villagers if you're willing to just mine a few extra diamonds and start trading i think the fact is these changes are there for people who want long-term worlds and they want to be able to trade as many sets of diamond armor as possible they still have a little bit of a barrier to entry to that and it prevents these from being simply exploitable via raid farms and nothing else which is another problem with villager balancing that we've highlighted in previous discussions is that if you can buy absolutely everything they trade for just emeralds then it's very easy to incredibly easily overrun your economy with emeralds and leave no other barriers to trading, basically. So I think that's potentially the start of them rebalancing things in favor of, well, you're going to need more resources than just emeralds if you want to trade fully and successfully. But for players for whom that is not an objective, they can still ignore these mechanics in favor of other things. You can go raiding end cities if you prefer you know, going and looting structures for this stuff, and you're going to find diamond armor by the bucket load and raw diamonds in a lot of those chests as well, many of which will come with enchantments that you can simply grindstone off, unlike the trades that you're going to get from these villagers. It's really there for people who want to play economy, want to play colony sim, and mess mm. around with villagers mm. a little bit more. And for people for whom that is your flavor, great. But for people who that isn't their flavor in the first place, it's just adding an additional layer on top of things that's saying okay this really isn't for me let me refocus my gameplay on other things it's strange to me that people argue that they don't have the time to mess around with this stuff but they still want to get into villager trading at all instead of just focusing on the aspects of the game that make them happy and i think the argument there is that villager trading as it stands now is easy like it's the easy road right like yeah. you don't have to go hunting for stuff if you can just build this villager up through trial and error to what you want you you invest some time in one spot 
lock that villager in place, protect them in a hall, and then whenever you want things, you just basically go to the vending machine and get it. Yeah, right? I mean, and I think you, that's... Cure, you cure two two zombie villagers in an area, and you can, in theory, have an infinite supply of anything you ever want, because you just breed yeah. those two villagers together and keep making villages. Right, and see, and and I think that's that's the real underlying complaint that people may not be voicing, right? Is it's like, you're taking away my easy mode, yeah. and now I have to do it the hard way. And... um to that effect though and to you're talking about you know exploiting things with villager raid farms uh i want to mention the uh the economy of it which is that at the top trades you've got one iron block for four emeralds across the board except for taiga where it's one diamond block for 42 emeralds <laughs> still and not worth I, it <laughs> no i i still don't I, like i don't trade with villagers enough to know but in terms of like the the other trades like there's five iron ingots for one emerald uh and then the emerald um block or not the that's the, the iron block for four uh emeralds is that a good trade like i mean i guess it depends on whether you have an iron farm if you've got an iron farm going on the server then like well all you need to do is just wait and then you can basically trade iron for infinite amount of of emeralds, right? Well, it's it's a good trade until you get to zombifying and curing villages, because five if you look at five iron ingots per emerald, if you trade them ten iron ingots, you're getting two emeralds back, as opposed to making an iron block with nine iron ingots and getting four emeralds. Like you're doubling your money by trading them yep. iron blocks. But then if you zombify and cure one of these, and they're trading you one iron ingot per emerald, it suddenly becomes much less of a good deal, unless you know, whatever zombification discounts you get also apply to the output of emeralds from the iron block trade. And here is the interesting thing. I think this is the first trade in which we receive multiple emeralds for trading something to a villager. Like, I don't think there are any other trades in the books in which we receive more than one emerald in exchange for goods. Um, and if that's the case, I would love to see more of this <laughs> because I, I I like that idea. And now, obviously, like the diamond block one, I still think because diamonds are a finite resource, a lot of players aren't going to go with that for 42 emeralds. But there might be some players who do and fair play if you don't value diamonds highly enough to want to hoard them. I think it's kind of fun to give players a bit more room to play with the village economy instead of just relying on everything being, you know, x amount of emeralds in for one item out or one item in for one emerald out i think it's a lot more fun to give us things which are worth more to villagers as a result speaking of things that are worth more i know that you had some thoughts on the enchanted book loot rebalance as well yeah well that that's just one change that's flown under the radar a little bit on top of all of these villager changes and it's something that i think i brought up on a previous episode or something that was sort of floated as a as an idea and i'm really happy they've decided to go with this at least on an experimental uh, phase because they've decided to rebalance valuable book acquisition by giving them to certain librarians but also in this snapshot by adding the books to certain structure loot more frequently and not only that but in locations that once again feel relevant to the books so you'll find mending in ancient city loot chests where mending absorbs xp orbs to repair your equipment and you're finding that in a location where skulk spreads thanks to absorbing xp so it feels related it almost feels like the mending enchantment could have come as a result of whatever arcane stuff the people who inhabited ancient cities were doing and maybe the study of the skulk is where it all went wrong the darker side of mending right you find efficiency in abandoned mine shafts where miners would doubtless appreciate being able to dig more effectively 
Obviously, Quick Charge appearing in Pillager Outposts for the crossbow users makes sense. And then Unbreaking appears in Desert Pyramids and Jungle Temples, where I think this is probably the biggest leap of logic out of all of them, but I think it brings us to the idea of these civilizations building these structures wanting to preserve things for longer. If you think about, you know, the uh, ancient Egyptian... Uh, pharaohs being buried in pyramids with a lot of their possessions so they could be preserved into the afterlife <laughs> that's sort of like the, <laughs> the 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 mental avenue that i'm going down but like the idea that you can find the more valuable books and you can find efficiency one through five you can find unbreaking one through three and this counterbalances some of the stuff where players weren't happy that you couldn't get a full efficiency five book from villager trading anymore that the max you could get was efficiency three and you'd have to combine them i think it's kind of nice to prioritize a bit more exploration and a bit more uh you know structural exploration in order to give players more of a chance of finding these things and not to mention yeah ancient cities you're going to want to go to anyway for a variety of unique loot that's there you also get swift sneak books which you can't get anywhere else and desert and jungle temples have their own armor trims so players are already going to be going looking for items like that in the first place and for them to be rewarded for these one-off structures by uh, finding these books i think is going to be a really worthwhile thing it's not as renewable as villager trading is it's not the kind of thing where you can sit there and get 16 unbreaking three books out of raiding jungle temples but i think it's nice that they have considered rebalancing those in favor of different gameplay styles for the people who don't want to sit with a villager and just go combining books over and over again i, I think it all makes a lot of sense I, I really like the idea of things like you know mending books in the deep dark pulling xp orbs and that kind of stuff it, it it lines up and it and it tracks and you're also putting these books that are beyond the capability of villager trading into some of the more dangerous parts of the world too right yeah yeah definitely and i i think it's it's just a smart thing to do and it makes me wonder where they can rebalance other things like that like where other villager trades that people are finding are dropping off a little bit could potentially be popping up in in other places in future so I'm I'm willing to keep my eyes peeled on this score. I'm not convinced that any of these villager trades are necessarily a bad thing for the game just yet, and uh, I know it's going to affect a lot of people's gameplay styles currently, but I'm wondering about the future of the game here. Uh, but that's where we're going to wrap up this episode of The Spawn Chunks. Thank you so much for listening, folks. You can find more information about the show and links to some of the stuff that we've talked about today over at thespawnchunks.com. The music for the show is composed by me, and The Spawn Chunks is proud to be a listener-supported podcast. If you're getting some value out of the show, why not consider putting some value back in? You can do that at patreon.com slash thespawnchunks. You'll join our community there. Pledging at any level gets you an invite to our patrons-only Discord chat. You can listen to the show live when we record it in Discord every Monday. We also have our monthly minecraft audio hangout and quarterly hangouts coming up where we talk about what people have been doing in minecraft themselves and also discuss the facts and figures the behind the scenes stuff about the podcast respectively we are currently sitting at 322 patrons which is up from 313 last week thank you so much to the folks who have made sure their pledges have renewed after the patreon reshuffle at the beginning of the month and special thanks go out to our content engineer patrons hunter 555 jumbo sale mind trip media party voyager and yitz thank you all for your support on this episode as a bit of a teaser for that upcoming uh quarterly hangout we're coming up on a milestone that i'm excited to share so mm -hmm. you'll, you'll be wanting to in to tune into that when we have a time to record it sharing the podcast with your friends is the easiest way to support the show you can find us at the spawn trunks on twitter and instagram 
Personal recommendations are by far the best way to share the podcast. Just tell a friend about the Spawn Chunks and they, they can find it on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and even YouTube. Be sure to leave a rating and a review on your favorite platform. You can email the show at spawnchunkmail at gmail.com. Please use that email address. The RSS feed is linked at thespawnchunks.com and the patron-only RSS feed is on the Patreon page. That's where you can listen to the Render Distance, the extended version of the podcast. My name is Johnny, but I go by Pixorifs. You can find most of what I do at youtube.com slash Pixorifs, where the Minecraft Survival Guide is currently in its third season. I also stream three days a week on Twitch, where I do behind-the-scenes work for the aforementioned YouTube series, and I'm the voice of the unofficial Hermitcraft recap, which you can find through a quick YouTube search. Aside from that, I'm at Pixorifs on both Twitter and Instagram. Joel, where can people find you online? Everything that I am doing online can be found at joelduggan.com, including a link to the Citadel Cafe, my other podcast about sci-fi and fantasy entertainment. Uh, my friend Stephen ESC and I are going to be talking about Ahsoka, the latest Star Wars series on Disney Plus this week. I'm Joel Duggan on social media. Very easy to find Joel Duggan on Twitch, where I stream Thursday through Sunday, mostly Minecraft with Lego on Fridays. But lately, I've been playing a lot of Starfield. You should come check it out. Thanks for visiting the Spawn Chunks. The world outside is infinite, but at least we've mapped all the villages. 